At the end of chapter 5 in Hosea, God has uh, told Israel, um, and oh, Jordan's over preaching, other side of town, he'd love this. Deuces, I'm out. That's what God has told Israel. I'm gone. He said at the end of chapter 5, I will depart and return to my place. God's done with them. He said, I'm going home. When you finally decide to repent, let me know. Okay? Uh, just keep me informed when the time comes. Of course, we know God, didn't, God doesn't leave, and he's everywhere, and he didn't need to be informed. He need, yeah, you know, but he is, he is making a point here. He also doesn't, doesn't say deuces, I don't think. Um, he's done with them. He's given them all these warnings. Of course, then being the gracious God that he is, this is a, a, an example, this is, he is proving a point, making a point, and then we get right back into the messages about repentance. But God has done the work. He's done the, the warning and the calling and the begging and, and all the, the things that he has tried to do through Hosea, through many countless other prophets, and Israel just will not listen. And so he says, I'm gone. The, the onus is on them now. It is their responsibility to respond to the Lord. And so he says, when you're ready, let me know. The big idea for our message this morning is the work has been done. It is now our responsibility to turn to the Lord in repentance. God has done what he is going to do. Doesn't mean he's not going to continue to draw us. But there is a day coming for every one of us who has not accepted Christ where the Lord will say, I'm done. I've called, I've called, I've called, and you've not responded. There is coming a day for every one of us who has accepted Christ, but has not lived according to his calling, who has not lived in obedience to him when he says, I'm done. I've called, and I've called, and I've called, and now I'm giving you over to your own life. This is the way you want it? Fine. It's a, not a good place to be when the Lord has said, I will depart and return to my place. But the last part of that verse, as gone as he is, he's never gone completely, until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. The promise, the hope, the possibility is still there. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, 2. I'm not going to read it all now. We're going to read it as we move through it this morning, I think. Or do I have? No, I don't. Okay, yeah, that's right. Um, first thing we see is God's call to repentance. But at this point, this is not God speaking. 
Yes, God has told Hosea to say this. Here's the, the dynamic of, of scriptural inspiration, the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the writers of the authors. The Holy Spirit inspired the authors to write things from their own perspective, from their own point of view. So in verses 1 through 3, we are hearing Hosea. We're hearing the prophet, the preacher, tell the people from his heart, as led by the Holy Spirit, come Let us return to the Lord. Makes sense for the prophet who has just told the people, God's done with y'all, to be the one then to stand up and say, unless we repent, until we repent, until we recognize our guilt and we seek his face, he's done with us. So, Hosea says, come, let us return to the Lord. Hosea calls Israel to repentance one more time. Well, you say, well, Michael, he just says return to the Lord. He doesn't say repent. Eh, in the Old Testament, when the Lord says return, when a prophet says return, when anyone says, I will return, inherent in that is repentance. Inherent in in that is acknowledging what was done. Go back to verse 15 of chapter 5. Until they recognize their guilt, acknowledgement, and seek my face, repentance. It's the call on us today. It's the call on every person who has not trusted Christ as Savior. The work has been done on the cross. Now it is the responsibility of the lost person to turn to Christ and accept salvation from Him. The work has been done. Now it is your responsibility to turn to the Lord in repentance. Believer, wandering believer, prodigal who is left, you who is determined to do it at your own way, who is determined to live in sin. God is calling you to come back, to repent, to return. The work is done. You have been forgiven. Now it is your responsibility to return to Him and repent. Acknowledge what you have done and come back to Him. That's Hosea's call. Hosea continues his sermon in the next part of verse 1 and through verse 2, and we see the confounding of healing. My grandfather, my big dad, was he, he had a few pet phrases that uh, when he was... Uh, just depending on the, the situation, but he would get in a, a sneezing fit sometimes, and uh, he'd sneeze and he'd sneeze and he'd sneeze and he'd sneeze, and finally he'd sneeze and confound. That was his expletive, at least in that situation. Um, to be confounded is to be confused. Dad, gummit, why am I still sneezing? It's, it's confusing. It, it is confounding this healing that Hosea is going to talk about. Because look at this passage. For he, Hosea is talking about God, for he has torn us and he will heal us. 
He's the one that's ripped us up. And he's the one that will put us back together. He has wounded us, and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day, he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. The confusion, the confounding here, is the fact that the one who did the wounding will do the the binding. The one who did the tearing will do the healing. It's confounding that the healing comes from the one who punishment, uh, who punished them. It's not really what you'd expect, I don't think. You expect that the one who wounds you, the one who tears you apart, the one who, in this case, according to the end of verse 3, kills you, because that's what happens when you get torn apart, you die. It's expected that the one who does those things would step back and say, somebody else has got to fix that. I'm not, I'm not fixing that. But see, the sin was against God, and the punishment is from God. So the repentance and the return is to God so that the healing and the binding can come from God. See, God's not farming out the healing. God's not farming out the the binding of the wounds. God is not farming out the resurrection. God's not saying, in verse 15, I'm done, y'all figure out somebody else to save you. He is the one who is there ready to save. As a matter of fact, healing can only come from the one who provided the punishment. Nothing else can heal. The people have tried. Israel has tried. They've tried their false gods. They've gone and they've cut down the tree and they've chopped, up, chopped it up into pieces and they've eyed the log and said, oh, that's a good one. That's a, yeah, that's solid. That's sturdy. And they've cut the bark off of it and trimmed it down and they've made big chunks off, taken big chunks off of it and, and slowly found the, 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 the shape of a god inside it. You know, that's how... Uh, I believe it was Leonardo da Vinci was asked how he uh, could, could carve such beautiful statues, such incredible work. And he said, I just chip off the parts that aren't supposed to be there. Well, duh. That's real helpful. Thanks, Leo. But, but, but uh, uh, Ken, I don't even know where he's sitting. I can't, I can't find him at the moment. Ken, uh, 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 Tilton does the same thing. He, he carves out of wood. He, he takes away the part that isn't supposed to be there. And inside is, is this wonderful uh, image. Great talent, great skill. Except these people, as they took the part off that wasn't supposed to be there, they've cut down the tree, and they've chopped it up into pieces, and they've carved it off. Suddenly, they found not just some nice little uh, uh, carving of a, an owl or a squirrel or a, a garden gnome, but they, lo and behold, found a god. Isaiah mocks them. You cut down the tree... 
You find a piece, you carve a god out of it, and the rest of the tree you use for firewood. And that's your god? And that's what they've done. And they've gone to that little carved image and said, Heal us, O little carved image that I made. Healing can't come from the one that didn't provide the punishment. If I pick up that carved image and I throw it at one of you and I crack your skull, healing's not going to come from that little thing that caused the cracked skull or from me either. I can't fix you. Going to have to go to somebody else, not with God. It's a pretty wonderful thing. It's, it's, the, it's the idea of going to the surgeon for whatever the, the, the procedure that's necessary. And, and, and the surgeon cuts and, and does all these things to get inside. And, and, and then uh, when he or she is done, they close you back up. If the surgeon, when, when I had my, my gallbladder out, if the surgeon had gone in and said, all right, well, let's go in here and cut this and take it out and all that stuff, and, and gallbladder's out, my, my job's done, Michael, yon, yon. Um, I got little robot arms sticking in my side right here. Uh, can we, what? See, the, the one who did it is the one who has to, to fix it. God is the one who, who fixes the discipline he causes. That's a lot of explanation for something that should be obvious to you, but I want you to hear how remarkable it is that God who did the tearing does the healing, that God who does the wounding does the binding, that God who does the killing does the resurrecting. That is the epitome of grace. Because if I want to wound you, if I want to tear you, if I want to kill you, chances are I ain't interested in fixing you after the fact. I might feel a little guilt, maybe a little concern about what the coming months might bring but I am not if I wanted to do the harm I am not going to be the one that wants to fix you and God does that's because it wasn't retaliatory it's because it wasn't in anger that's because it wasn't just punitive it wasn't just punishment it was discipline it was redemptive I tore you so I could put you back together. I wounded you so I could bind you. I killed you so I could raise you. The surgeon, no matter how invasive the surgery is, no matter how long it may take, no matter how much of your body it may impact, as, as damaging as the cutting open is, as invasive as it is, as painful it would, as it would be if you weren't under uh, anesthesia, the whole purpose of that tearing open is to put you back together better. And that is the work that God is doing in this passage. 
And ultimately, we see that the healing, the binding, I mean, okay, my doctor analogy wears out right there, doesn't it? The doctor can cut me open, can, can tear me, and put me back together. Literally, when they cut you open, they are wounding you, and then they bind it. But if on that operating table... Things don't go as well as they had planned. And instead of doop, 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 they hear a boop for an extended period of time. That doctor's done. All of his skills can't put that Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's over. You scrambled. Can't unscramble an egg. but God. See, that's why it has to be God. That's why it has to be God who heals. That's why it has to be God who binds, because it is only God that can resurrect. And we are dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. We can't bring ourselves back to life. The wooden idol we carved out of the tree can't bring, ourselves, bring us to life. Only God can bring life from death. We know that because he brought creation from nothing. We know that because he brought Jesus from death to life. Interesting that we get to Jesus in this passage. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 4 says that he was buried according to the scriptures and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, Paul's rarely specific in his quoting. Sometimes he's like really, really not specific because he'll say, it says somewhere. Thanks, Paul. This one, he doesn't get specific. He just says according to the scriptures. There is only one passage in the entire Old Testament that talks about anything being raised from death to life in three days. Jonah is a symbol of it. It is an analogy of it in the whale three days or the fish three days and come out in three days as he was in the, whale, in the fish, I'll be in the tomb. But this is the only one that talks about from death to life in three days. Because the only healing, the only binding, the only resurrection that we have for our lives is Jesus. That's just as confounding as anything else. But we don't have to understand it. We just have to respond to it and have confidence in it. Verse 3, confidence in in salvation. Let us strive to know the Lord, Hosea says. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. We can have confidence in our salvation. Let us strive to know the Lord. This, this idea of knowing in the Old Testament, if you remember your King James Bible or still use it, you'll read of 
husband and wife in various passages, and the phrase that's used usually in husband and wife activities is, he knew her. Y'all with me on what I'm talking about here? So I don't have to get too graphic. He knew her. Now, we assume, right, they'd met before that, that, that point. Yeah, I mean, they, they were familiar with each other. They'd talked, gone to Starbucks, seen a movie. And then they get married, and then he knew her. This is, if not the physical image, the, the uh, psychological image that we get when Scripture talks about the Lord knowing us or us knowing the Lord. It is an intimate knowledge. It is a relationship, a personal relationship. New Testament doesn't talk about us having a personal relationship with Jesus. That's not a phrase that it uses. That's a phrase that we use. But one of the reasons we use that phrase is because to know Jesus is to have a personal relationship with him. Hosea says, to return to the Lord, to repent from where you are and come back to him or come to him for the first time, if that's the case. To, to come to him, to return to him, is to know him. Well, they've learned something about him in all these messages about justice, about judgment, about forgiveness, about grace, about sinfulness, about obedience. They've learned a lot about the Lord, so they know him, but Hosea is saying, you don't know him the way you could. You've been to Starbucks, you've seen a movie with him, but you don't know him. Hosea says, let us strive to know the Lord. Strive to know the Lord. Work at knowing the Lord. Spend time in his word to know him. Spend time in prayer to know him. Spend time with his people in the faith family to know him. Those are always spend time serving him to know him. Those are how, those are the ways we know the Lord. We strive to do those things. This morning, getting ready to come to church, Ed and I were talking about how we were already tired before this day even started. Because we know this day will not end for us until 10 or 10.30 tonight. Right after church, we'll start the preparation for this evening. Many of you will too. Y'all, the, the Christian life is to strive, is to work, is to put out, is to be put out, to be used up. And get up the next day and do it again. We are His, not ours. We strive, we work, we give, we exert to know the Lord. And He says, to return to me is to know me. Then He goes on and says, His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. 
those spring showers, the rain, sometimes they were delayed. Sometimes they were delayed years. There may be a drought, but they always came. They never failed to come eventually. The sun will come out. Thank you. Every day. No matter what. I mean, unless Jesus comes back, or, or we've kind of got the whole order wrong or something, and we get wiped out first. The sun's going to, the dawn is coming. Twelve hours or so. Oh, no, less than that, right? No, 18 hours or so. It'll be here, and then, and then we'll do it again the next day. As sure as the dawn, God is coming. As sure as the dawn, you're going to meet the Lord. As sure as the rain, you're going to stand in judgment. As sure as the spring showers, you are going to kneel before Jesus Christ and confess Him as Lord. The question is, Will you do that on earth before you die? And therefore, it will be a time of rejoicing and celebration. Or will you wait until you are forced to kneel before the king who has always been king? And the last thing you hear is not enter into my rest, but depart from me, for I never knew you. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. The question is, where will we be in relation to him? Will we have striven to know the Lord? Or will we have done everything we could to avoid him? When he says, I will heal. When he says, I will bind. When he says, I will resurrect I will raise up. We can have confident expectation in the salvation that he offers. We have hope. We know that his promise is sure. We know that his promise is true. And we will be made new. I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek for me and they will seek search for me in their distress. Verses 4 through 7 2 show us the comprehensiveness of sin. He's not going to cover it all here, but he covers a lot. Pat, did I put the verses on here? There I am. All right. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. This is why I've used the prophets to cut them down. I've killed them with the words from my mouth. My judgment strikes like lightning. For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But they, like Adam, have violated the covenant. There they have betrayed me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with bloody footprints. Like raiders who wait an ambush for someone, a band of priests, murders on the road to Shechem. They commit atrocities. I have seen something horrible in the house of Israel. 
Ephraim's promiscuity is there. Israel is defiled. A harvest is also appointed, appointed for you, Judah. When I return my people from captivity, when I heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim and the crimes of Samaria will be exposed, for they practice fraud. A thief breaks in, a raiding party pillages outside, but they never consider that I remember all their evil. Now their actions are all around them. They are right in front of my face. We've gone from Hosea talking to God talking. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? He doesn't cover every sin they've committed, but boy, he, he covers... A, there are a lot of umbrellas here to cover a whole lot of individual sins. Sin defiles every facet of life. This passage of Scripture, as God describes it, shows us that sin is violent and awful and grotesque. Bloody footprints, priests murder on the roads, atrocities committed. He says, their actions are all around them. They are right in front of my face. I remember all of their evil. Language fails in its ability to describe what an affront sin is to God. We, we think we know. We think we're disgusted by things. We think we know what it is to be repulsed, and yet we do not in any way fathom the divine repulsiveness that sin is to God. And yet, he wades through that in the form of the sun, or the sun taking the form of the, a man, and comes down and lives in it. You think a sewer's nasty? Live in it for 33 years to reach the rats that live there. That is what Jesus did. As grotesque and as repulsive and awful and violent as it is, Jesus came to live among it so that it could be forgiven so that it could be healed. That was the purpose. That was the goal. To heal us. To bind our wounds. And to raise us up. We read this passage and we can lean toward saying, <laughs> Israel's bad. And we'd be right. But if we're, if we're really spiritual, really good students of the Bible, we'll read that passage and we'll go, <laughs> America's bad. And we'll get even more pious. Louisiana is bad. This is even talking about sulfur. No, it's talking about you. 
It's talking about me. It's talking to you and me. It's calling us to repent and to return. It is telling us this morning, unbeliever and believer alike, lost person and saved alike, that the work has been done. It is now the responsibility of us to turn to the Lord in repentance. Jesus did the work. On the cross, in some cosmic exchange, sacrifice, ransom, there are so many words we use to describe what went on the, on, what went on, on the cross. And none of them quite do everything. That's why we have to use so many different words. But on that cross, the work of healing and binding and raising was done. Jesus did it. And when it was over, he told us the work was done. He told us it was completed. He let us know, I've done it. He said three little words. Actually, it's one word in Greek. And I'm not going to remember it, so I'm just going to say, it is finished. Tetelestai, or teletelestai. To tell us die, thank you. Always put an extra syllable in there. Good job, Chelsea. To tell us die. It is finished. It's done. The work is done. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? You've got an option this morning. To hear this message and go, somebody needed to hear that, and walk out and go home, nothing changes. To, I made a Facebook post this week about, uh, about First Baptist Jacksonville, and, and something I said on that post about change and, 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 and pulling back from decline and that sort of thing, but the... the we, we, what I said was it takes everybody, it takes unity, it can't be a few doing the work, uh, many being indifferent, and a handful to snipe from the sidelines. That, that won't change a church, at least not for the better. What are you going to do today with the message? Are you going to add to the few who do the work? who strive to know the Lord? Or will you be among the many who are leaving or just indifferent? Uh, yeah, well, he wasn't talking to me, so, or maybe he was, but eh, whatevs. Or will you be among the handful who snipe from the sidelines? Well, yeah, he was talking to me. I'll show him. Not do anything. That jerk, among other things. How are you going to respond? Because he's not talking to Ephraim, Israel, Judah, America, Sulphur. He's talking to you. Jesus has done the work.
will you return? Come, let us return to the Lord. Do you feel torn this morning? He will heal you. Do you feel wounded this morning? He will bind you. Do you feel like life is over? He will raise you up. Return to the Lord this morning. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of life is etern- the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The work's been done. You only need to respond. It's just another way to say what I've said for the last 30 minutes. Return. Come to him this morning. Our time of response is going to be a little different today. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes. I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get there. But this morning, I'm going to ask Mindy to just come on up. This morning, our time of response will be just a couple of minutes of of quiet right there in your seat. If you would like me to pray for you, I will. I don't want to hinder anyone. But if, if you want to talk about something, we can do that after the service if you'd like to do that. I don't want to. I don't want to hinder anything. But it's just going to be a time of quiet reflection. Where are you? Do you need to return to the Lord? Is He calling you this morning? Is this passage for you? The work has been done. This morning you need to turn to the Lord in repentance. When Paul wrote about. The Lord's Supper, an event that, as one born at a time, he says, he didn't take, get to take part in, but he learned about it from Christ himself. He said, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. This morning, you need to examine yourself. I need to examine myself. And say, do I need to return to the Lord before I come to a table where I celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection? Before I proclaim his death until he comes, do I need to get my life right because I haven't been living like I proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection before he comes. That's going to be the next couple of minutes. We'll take the Lord's Supper, and then we'll worship for a few more minutes before we head out. If you're not a member of First Baptist Church of Sulphur, you are still welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us, provided you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and been scripturally baptized as a believer. And that would mean at some point from the time you were six, seven, eight on, it's not an absolute number, but you made a decision to follow Christ, not christened as a baby, not sprinkled as a baby, but you've made a decision to follow Christ and been baptized after the fact, then you are welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us no matter where your membership is. So I'm going to pray. Mindy, go ahead and start playing. We'll take a couple of minutes of time of prayer as we 
prepare ourselves and come to this to examine ourselves to come to the table and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who though you give us the image of going home saying I'm done, you're never done with us. Lord, we know that there could come a time when you are, when you say, I will no longer pursue you. And Lord, if that's the case, then, then that means that, that, that we can no longer respond because we only respond through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, that ain't none of my business. I stand before a crowd of people who I pray is still feeling the call of you and that they respond this morning in their hearts. Lord, move in this place as we examine ourselves, as we seek seek you as we celebrate you.